sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. It is astounding that you would send your son and the son would willingly put his full submission under you and step onto this earth and in a great incarnation add flesh to his deity. Walk on this earth for 33 years perfectly sinless. And then take his position on that cross as the final lamb so that we could be holy. There'll be nothing in heaven, Lord, that's not holy. So there was only one way to make us holy, and it was through your son's offering. And so, Lord, we thank you that we see that time and time again in the Old Testament, how it inspires us and spurs us on to love Jesus, to worship him with true hearts, hearts that regularly confess and repent, hearts that desire to be right with God because he did so much for us. There is nothing greater in our life that motivates us than the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his powerful resurrection. Lord, thank you for this. We thank you we can sing these truths, we can preach these truths, we can witness to others these truths, and we can have our bond and fellowship over these truths, Lord. Lord, encourage us tonight as we once again look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus 11. When you think about how you got saved, you have to understand and we have to be reminded, and even the way the Bible is set up, even in the Old Testament, that we are Christians not because of what we did or didn't do. Now think about that. So many people think they're Christians because they don't do certain things, and maybe they do some things. We're not Christians for any of those things. We're Christians because of what God did. God sent his son, and his son died for us. He beat death, resurrected from the dead, and God gave us his son's righteousness, and now we are followers of Christ who are Christians. It's all a gift. And yet, and yet, and we're gonna, you're going to hear me highlight this through this passage because you've probably read Leviticus 11 many times and you're trying to figure out unclean and clean and all that stuff. That there is a response. There is a response to salvation by those who are the people of God. We respond in faith to our salvation with life, a life that strives by the Spirit's help, uh, help to be holy. First Peter Chapter 1, 14 through 16, Peter's quoting Leviticus eleven forty four. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were in your ignorance. One of the things when you study Leviticus, he's gone through the sacrificial system. Now he's showing things that, that God wants them to choose to do so that they'll be holy and can enjoy the fellowship with God. Is it not true, think about this, is it not true that when, we, when we're in sin and we don't confess it, we fight it or blame shift it or do something with it other than confess and repent of it, we don't feel very holy, do we? In fact, you don't feel real close to God. So, so God 
wants his dear children not to conform to the pagan world, right? The world that is outside of the God-given faith that he's given. He wants us to live holy lives, doesn't he? In fact, he wants us so much that he sent his son to die for it, to give all the provision we need through the power of the resurrected Savior, the the implanting, the indwelling, the abiding work of the Spirit in our life, always spotlighting Christ in his word to give us the strength to live holy lives. I know that's a mouthful, but it just gets flowing out. That's what God's after. So Peter says, as obedient children, I love that. What's the opposite? As disobedient children, right? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were in your ignorance. The word ignorance is, is connected to your lack of understanding what Jesus Christ has done. Doesn't mean you're sinless. Doesn't mean that you're not responsible for your sin as an unbeliever. But the ignorance is that you you don't have faith, you weren't given faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's talking about what you used to be like you were ignorant to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then this is where he quotes Leviticus 11.44. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, kaleod, called you out, pulled you out, picked you out. Be holy yourself also in all of your behavior, because it, is, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I love that statement. We don't make ourselves holy. God makes us holy. We're holy because God has made us holy. And, there's, and, there, and as I said in my prayer, there's no way you can be in heaven unless you're holy. So God's goal is to make his children holy, Right? so that we can reside in his presence forever. And that spotlights the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the resulting work of our salvation, brothers and sisters, pleads, pushes, drives, urges, instills in us a desire to be holy. It should. That's what salvation should do. Not to live lives that flirt and and run in, in accordance with a pagan world. He wants us to be holy. 1 John chapter 3, 3 through 4, he says this, John, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, listen to this, purifies himself just as he is pure. See, there's a result to our salvation that, that we strive, even though we have a, a, what we call a positional holiness, right? I'm positional holiness. There is a practical holiness that we strive for, not in a legalistic way, but because Jesus is worth it. See the great difference? How many of us were raised with a, maybe a very legalistic, don't do these things, don't do these things, and you'll be a good Christian? We, we, we learn when we love Christ that our, that our positional holiness drives our practical holiness. Does that make sense? What's driving you to be here today? A love for Christ, a love for his word, a love for each other. I hope those are the three things that drive that. And so John says that everyone has this hope fixed in him. That's the gospel. That's our salvation of him. Purifies himself just as he is pure, just as God is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So God gave his law pure as the law was to help us enjoy a holy relationship with him. Now again, Christ fulfills the law, but we realize that the word of God in all of its imperatives 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. All of those imperatives are to help us fully enjoy the experience we have with the Father through Jesus Christ. I'm just getting warmed up. That, isn't that fun to think about? This is who we are. I got saved. The night I got saved, what I told my mom was, God is holy. I'm not. There's no way he's letting me in. At a young age, I understood that much. God's holy. I'm not, and I can't get there. And my mom walked me through the gospel, and God opened my mind and my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And from there, now comes this drive to know Jesus Christ. What's really interesting, the way Leviticus is set up, the first 10 chapters have been all sacrifices, haven't they? Someone said to me the other day, they go, you're back in Leviticus? I go, yeah. They go, another sacrifice? I go, no. No, no. We've been through 10 chapters of sacrifice. Now, what comes after all this atoning sacrifices, after all these sacrifices, is the pursuit of holiness. Isn't that interesting? Now he takes us to what's clean and what's unclean. See, there's a result to atonement, isn't there? And though this is temporary here, right? This is all pointing towards Christ. But for us New Testament, New Covenant believers, we know that the atoning work of Jesus Christ, what produces what? Should produce holiness in us. A desire to live not in sinful ways, but ways that are pleasing to God. Um, the book is challenging to teach, as we've been learning, but yet each chapter has its own understanding. And here he begins to help us understand sin and, and the existence of, of sin in the world, how it's around us in every aspect of life. Even the creation is suffering from sin, and some of those things are going to be deemed holy, and some are going to be deemed unholy. But God wants us to obey him and believe him, and so he wants the nation to follow him. After they've now seen a way to be able to come to God, to have their sins reconciled, to be, to be right with God, at least temporarily, he now says, now I want you to obey me and feel my full fellowship. Chapter 12, he's going to remind them of the transmission of sin. It's a very short chapter. It's eight verses. I'm going to do it next week. It's really scary because it's about ladies and bleeding and all that stuff. So I'm going to do it really fast next week. <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> because we have a service, we have our, our members meeting at seven. So, um, eight verses, I think I can get through in 15 minutes. I want to go through it fast in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then you get to verse 13 and 14, chapter 14, 13 and 14. And he's going to show them the vileness of sin and how to put it away. He's going to use leprosy. He's going to show what leprosy is, is going to be a physical example of the vileness of sin and how to be washed away from it. And then he's going to get into 15, and he's going to show how sin will ultimately deform you, maim you. And then he's going to come to the great day of atonement and show how the priest now can go in one day a year and offer on behalf of the nation. So uh, that'll take us a little over halfway through the book, and, and uh, I think we'll enjoy it together. Well, let's look at our notes today and see if we can get through this chapter quickly. Um, a here, lessons of holiness from the land, sea, and air. Number one, they're the lesson from the land and the holiness of God. Look at verses one through eight. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, these are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides the hoof, thus making split hooves and chewing the cud among the animals you may eat. 
Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof, the camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof and is unclean. Likewise, the shaphan, for, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean for you. The rabbit also, and though it chews the cud, it is not divided the hoof, it is unclean for you. The pig, for though it is divides the hoof, it does not uh, uh, divides the hoof, thus it splits the hoof, and it does not chew its cud, is unclean to you. And you shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcass, they are unclean to you. Well, up to this point, again, as we've said, Leviticus has been providing the understanding of uh, understanding that God has provided atonement for them, for fellowship. And, and saved people, I, if you're saved in here, when, you, when, I, when I gave that understanding, those first 10 chapters, or, or how God has made a way, particularly in the nation of Israel, for them to have a right relationship with them, and now comes this lifestyle that comes from an atoned people. Well, so God's showing them that he's reconciled with them, and now he has a way for them to live. And when we start in chapter 11, God now opens up their understanding of the sinfulness that is around them, and and particularly around them in everyday things. See, God desires the sinner to flee to atonement. You know, one of the things that as you grow in Christ, hopefully sin causes us to, to flee back to the cross at times. When we sin, we desire to be right. Hopefully it's creating in us a mind that disdains sin and sees how it pollutes and defiles our thinking about God and our thinking about the Word. And so I think what God is doing here is He showed them what His atonement is. Now He's going to show them things that are holy and unholy, how they can be, how they can, from the work of atonement, they can live for the Lord and sin will bother them. So I think what God's doing here is he's laying down instructions that contain a distinction that they need to obey in everyday things, everyday world that they live in. And so God arranges food items that they can eat and those they can't eat. You see that in these first eight verses here, right? And so the Israelite would every day, every day the Israelite would be met with objects where God says, you can, you can have this. And you can't have that. That I'm against, the some four. So every day, every time they wake up, every time they walk out and go to work, whatever they're doing, they're going to be engaged with things that God says is clean and God says is unclean, things that God said is holy and God says is unholy. He wants them to engage with those. I think that's very true of today, isn't it? It doesn't take you very long to walk outside your door, brothers and sisters, or turn on a TV, or maybe in your own home, certainly one to clean out the leaven, where you are engaged immediately with things that are unholy to God. And you have to make a decision whether you're going to partake in that or not. And what motivates that decision? And I think that's what he's doing with them here. I've given you a way to me. I've given you a way into my tabernacle. I've given you a way right to me into my most holy, holy through the sacrifice. Now, Will you follow me? Will you obey me? Will you listen to my instruction to what is sin and what is not? Now, we'll see that there's nothing morally different about the animals, right? There's some really tasty animals in here that are on the not-eat list. Yet God, God's making a difference between them. 
And he wants his children to believe him. He wants his children to believe him. And I think this is very important. Today there's a lot of issues going on that many so-called Christians said, why is that a big deal now? The rest of the world's doing it. But not to Bible believers. <laughs> not to those that hold to the literal grammatical and historical hermeneutic of the Bible, we say, yeah, we know you're embracing this stuff, but God is not. So, so there's real practical application to this, because every day you walk out the house and there's a pig and a cow. <laughs> Do I want bacon or New York strip? <laughs> am I going to obey God or am I going to disobey him? Is my appetite for this life, this hunger for what I want, is it going to be driven by God or is it going to be driven by my flesh. See, this is what he's doing with them. Where do they really love? What do they really hold to? God was reminding his children that they live in a fallen world. But he made a way so they can be right with him and they can make right choices. And you think about this. I was thinking about this today as I was pondering this passage and wrestling with it. It's not easy text. But I thought, the world is... It worships creation, doesn't it? Environmentalism is huge. I mean, the, the, man, as soon as the administration's flipped, the, man, the, the summits are going, and life, life's going to come to an end if you watch what they say. They're, they're completely clinging to this creation. And in fact, they worship it, and a, and a baby seal has a, a much better lifespan than a Baby in the womb. See, environmentalism is a religion. And when you study this, God's saying, I got things that are unclean in that world to show you this is a fallen world. See, environmentalism just rejects God completely. And look, though we are good managers, good stewards of what we have, if God gave you a cat, feed it and take care of it. I don't know why you would have a cat, but... <laughs> Sorry, you cat people, I'm really sorry. I like them in the barn. They kill mice and snakes. They're good out there. Am I right, Tom, or what? If you have a dog, if you've taken responsibility, some animal, some creature that God's given, you should be a good steward of that thing, but you should not worship it. And that's environmentalism today. They worship the creature, not the creator. Look at verse 2 with me. He said, speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, these are the creatures which you may, not, you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Well, certainly all the clean animals were given as wholesome food, and they were called clean, and, 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 and they're, they, they were safe for nutritious, wise, there's a lot that has to be done here. And I think a lot of people, when I, when I read a lot of the commentaries that seems to be prevalent. A lot of people believe, well, God was protecting their diet and their health, and I, and I think absolutely that's what God was doing. But I think there's a bigger problem. <laughs> if you go down that line, uh, I, I remember I was starting a little church that was out in the middle of nowhere, and I was just, it was kind of a Monday night church. They were never a big enough area to have a church. And, and um, I was gone for a couple of weeks, and some gal decided to start this Daniel diet. And I get back, and the whole church is into this Daniel diet. And they take a Daniel 1, and they made some diet out of it, and they were chasing these things down. And, and I said, oh, hold on here. What do you do with Acts chapter 10? What do you do with Acts 15? What do you do with a whole other list of passages where God now opens that up under the new covenant to eat your bacon? 
and ask for double on your burger. I mean, you know, so, so we have to be really careful with this. God, God's trying to show that he has a much higher plan in his wisdom and love, helping people believe him, believe his word, and obey him. He has a desire for people to be holy, and holiness comes from believing God and walking his way. And certainly that's a result of our positional holiness that we got through Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember way back, a couple years ago when I was in Genesis, when Noah comes off the ark, or even before the ark, he gives them clean animals on there. But that whole conversation that God has with Noah was about animals. And there we begin to understand that the world was worshiping certain pagan animals. And so even a lot of the unclean animals were, were uh, idolistic to the world. And most of them, a lot of them were very bad animals that we don't like, things that bite and have poison and all those kind of things in many cases. And so God was already dividing up these animals in this fallen world to draw the attention to his believers to believe him and obey him and, and see what he says is clean and holy despite what the world says. Well, that's going to be powerful. We're in trouble with the world someday because we are going to stand on the Bible when it comes to all of it but the big hot ticket things are relationships, right? Marriage and gender and all of that stuff. We are just going to lovingly keep saying, here's what the Bible says. This is what we believe. We, we love you, but, but this is what the Bible says. And we would really encourage you to repent and turn from that. That's going to be our loving biblical stance. And then we'll get some bracelets and off we'll go someday. That's what will happen. Because this is what God wants. And in Israel, one of the things that began to happen as they fell away from God, they began to realize that they did not care for those, those commands God gave. They wanted to eat like the world. They wanted to party like the world. They wanted to worship like the world. They wanted to do all those things, and they soon depart these things. So God, he is instilling in the mind of Israel right here a moral distinction. And he started that back in Adam's day. He gave a little snippets of it. He gave more snippets in Roman in, in Noah's day. And here he develops the entire system to have his people uniquely set apart for him. Now, again, the key to all this is in verse 44 and 45. We'll get to that. God's desire is for people to be holy. Now, notice in verse 33, excuse me, 3 and 4, there's a list here. There's a list of these animals. And if you were to flip over to Deuteronomy, we'll get there in time. There's a more detailed list. But here in Leviticus 11, he lays down the principles of distinctions, and he's illustrated by a few examples of animals and birds and creepy things that crawl around and so forth. Um, the clean animals in verses 3 and 4 were those that had a divided hoof, like a cow, not a horse. So eat your cow, ride your horse. And they chew the cud. So, so he, he's, he's separating animals based on those two things, particularly here in this passage. Now, the foot um, would have a membrane, so if you go home and get your cat or your dog and open his little paws there, he's going to have a membrane between there, right? If you have a lab like we have, their membrane's longer because they like to swim. Um, so uh, that membrane right there tells you you can't eat your dog in Old Testament times. If you want to eat them now, <laughs> I just wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've been to places around the world, I'm pretty sure I've had one or two. <laughs> um, but it made your dog or your kitty safe in the Old Testament, didn't it? This is, it was safe um, from eating there. If the animal chewed its cud, it, it meant it wasn't carnivorous, right? 
it was on vegetation. So anything that chews a cud, what the cud is, is that's chambered stomachs, and they bring up, and they get the nutrients out, and they go back down with it and do it again and again. And, and the psalmist in Psalm 1 uses this as an illustration of how we meditate on God's Word. But there's no carnivorous animals that are clean when you study the Old Testament. There's none. So you can't eat the lion, the tiger, the bear. You can't eat any of those things. Again, some of those are tasty, and we'll talk about them later. But notice he makes a special exemption for the camel, which is very interesting. Camel was argued over whether it was a split hoof or not. If you look at the hoof of a camel, it does split in some ways, but there seems to be a hidden membrane in there. So God says, don't eat the camel. And I think that's good because you shouldn't eat your transportation. And, the, and that's what they used often. <laughs> so, so he makes a real clear distinction. Look at 5 through 8. Again, here we come to some tasty animals um, that we run into um, he says, uh, the, the Chapin, there's a lot of, I think maybe the ESB says a rock badger. Is that what it says in there? Um, he's, he's like a rat. Like you ever know what a marmot is? They're out west, marmots. I think he's something like that, kind of a rabbit type of guy out there. Um, uh, probably very tasty, um, I would imagine. Um, and yet God says, no, I don't want you to do that. And he goes down through this list of animals that he doesn't want, but he comes to the pig, and, and again, America's love, love our pigs, don't we? We love our bacon and so forth. Uh, the word for pig here is, is for, really for a wild boar. In a lot of things we do study, God was conscious of it. Um, if you eat a farm-raised pig that you've fed grain and particularly tried to feed it up for eating, very, very good. But if you're going to kill a wild boar and then eat it, you better be careful with that. And you better cook it very well. And you better handle it because there's a lot of parasites and things that come with those wild animals, particularly like a pig, that would be known for eating dead things itself. And so God certainly was preparing them. But look at verse 8 here. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcass. They are unclean to you. So certainly God put his creation on display here. I, I think Clean or unclean animals are, are very much on display here. And, and obviously the Israelites looked at these animals and they saw the handiwork in God's design. Um, but they were to understand that sin has affected creation. And even these unclean animals, they were groaning for their own redemption. And, and so God's putting on display, this is my creation. I made them perfect. You sinned and ruined it. Although I am going to say these I want you to partake of so you understand my holiness and these I want you to say no to. I don't want you to do that. And I want you to believe me. So God took all of his creation and he showed the nation of Israel. He shows them objects of sin and he shows them objects of holiness so that they would understand God and, and, and understand themselves properly. And even if these unclean animals were dead, they weren't allowed even to touch them. As a reminder of the danger of sin. He wants them to see how dangerous sin is. That it should not even be touched. And yet, so often Christians will want to argue with you about clear, clear truth. But the Bible says, no, this, I don't want you engaged in this. They will argue with you trying to justify their positions. Now, the lesson for us in the New Covenant is we are to love what God loves and hate what God hates. That's the lesson for us in the New Covenant. Certainly, we're free from the dietary restrictions. Again, make sure you understand. It says he wrote this to the sons of Israel. So we should not take these on as to the church. But for us, it's learning under this New Covenant that God hates things and God loves things. 
And we need to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And hate's a strong word, isn't it, today? It's, it's going to work its way into a lot of amendments, I imagine, soon. Um, but, but God really does hate things. He does. Six things I hate, yea, seven in Proverbs chapter 6. And so there are certain things that God hates, and we need to learn, learn to hate that. It doesn't mean we treat people with hate in any way. That's, that's wrong. The Bible is very clear on that. But there is, there is a learning to be in a hatred to sin. And, and the problem with Christians sometimes is we learn to hate everybody else's sin but ours. And I think what God's doing here is he wants the individual Israelite to look at his choices, what he loves, and, and what God says, and does that match? See, I think there's a real connection for us, isn't there? So we are to continue to pursue what God calls holy. And we're to turn from the things that God says are unholy, that are not of him. See, remember, sin will be judged eternally, and holiness will last for eternity. Did you catch that? Sin will be judged for eternity. Holiness will last for eternity. And so the Bible tells us in Hebrews that we are to pursue holiness. We are to pursue sanctification. That's what the Bible tells us. Two, lessons from the water and the holiness of God, 9 through 12. These you may eat, whatever is in the water, all the that fins and scales, those are in the, in the water, in the seas, and on the river, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the, in the rivers that does not have fins or scales, among all these teeming life of the water, among all the living creatures that are in the water, there are detestable things to you. And they shall be abhorrent to you, and you may not eat of their flesh, and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever is in the water that does not have fins and scales abhor, abhorrent is to you. So here the rule is very simple. You look at this creature that's in the water, does it have fins and scale? You can eat it, right? Pretty simple principle. And so most of the fish that they would come across, they could have for food, right? Now, we got a problem with our catfish to, uh, Wednesday we have every once in a while because they don't have scales. <laughs> so if you're an Old Testament saint and all you people love the South and love catfish, because when I drive through the South, there's everybody selling catfish, and I'm thinking, what happens when the older generation dies? Is there going to be a catfish? You know, people are wanting that. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, I enjoy it, but right in the Old Testament, catfish was out. <laughs> And also shellfish. And so you couldn't eat catfish, you couldn't eat shellfish, so that means clams, crabs, oysters, and oh, lobster. Um, <laughs> does not have fins or scales, and it was regarded as unclean. Now, there's some evidence when we study this that other cultures started to adopt what God had given to the, to the Jews, even the Romans and Egyptians. Um, there was some evidence at some time during their uh, reigns that they said no, no fish without scales. Most of these were bottom feeders. They were scavengers. Um, ancient times did not know how to cook these or clean these in a way that they were profitable. And so God certainly was protecting his people from that sickness that could come from it. But, but think about this. Many of the tribes lived bordering the, um, the Mediterranean Sea. And I was trying to think of some. I think Dan and Naphtali, some, some of them border, if I remember right, border the Mediterranean Sea there. And they would have got a much of what they ate from the sea, from the ocean. Others had seas of Galilee and Jordan rivers flowing through them. They would have um, access to food from these waters. And God was given the instruction to these tribes what was holy and what was not. And so he says, look, what's holy to the Lord should be holy to you. What's abhorrent, abhorrent to the Lord was, was clearly disobedience. 
So he's reminding them to love what he loves and to stain from what he stains. And the commands were for the entire land, for, for every family, where they were to be carried out, and this is this, they were to be carried out publicly and they were to be carried out privately. Oh, well, yeah, there's a lot of things we can do publicly. What's it like behind closed doors? And this was the real marker of whether this Hebrew really loved God and was grateful for the reconciliation that came through the sacrificial system is would they carry this out privately, secretly, in their own, behind their own door? How would it affect their business and their daily living? How would the younger and the elderly obey these laws? This would show whether they loved God and were grateful for their freedom from Egypt, their freedom from slavery, and the sacrificial system that brought them close to God. And so he covers everything, right? He covers from the oceans um, to the desert, to the fields, to the riversides. All of this, he said, is holy to me. Handle these things my way. And then he moves to lessons from the air. And just for the sake of time, because time's moving quickly, verses 13 through 19, you can just follow along as I make some comments here. Um, here we begin to see birds. Um, and again, a bird itself is not detestable. The bird is God's creation, right? A beautiful bird, whether it's a stork or a vulture that, that are in this list. But eating it was unholy to God. So the bird itself taught them that God created it. Um, a vulture gave birth to vultures, right? There's no evolution process in here. And so there wasn't changing. They knew when this command was given that, that to not eat a vulture or, or some stork or something, it wasn't going to change. So they could see that bird. They could see the beauty that God created here. But they were taught to say this was unholy to God and that it was to be abhorrent to them as it was to God. And, and all these Israelites, every time an Israelite saw one of these birds, it helped him remind him and understand, an understanding what was holy and what wasn't. And so I, I think it was a great word picture. Remember, there's no television, no radios, no preachers on TV, 24 hours, and no YouTube, none of that. Um, the priest would teach and lead people. So God put living sermons in front of them day after day to say as the stork flew by, they knew that was what God said, as beautiful it was and how it roosted on a rooftop or something like that, um, how great that thing was. God was teaching them through the sermon of that bird in a sense that God has things that are holy and things that are unholy and I need to obey him. Every one of these animals was a teaching lesson to them about what God said. Now, many of these creatures were magnificent because in this list you see hawks and falcons and all these things. Some of them have tremendous speed and agility. Um, many of, of the first set are carnivorous, right? They're, they're used to scavenging and eating on dead things. Um, others, others God created um, that were still unclean. Um, they kept down the rodent population. You can imagine, well, I guess I've, I've not seen this, but I hear New York is... Half people, half rats. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just hear, I read stuff, I go, wow, there's so many rats there. That's not good, right? So God creates these animals, knowing the world's going to fall, and these animals eat these rodents. Think about the bug population. In that list, you'll notice that they're not supposed to eat bats. Do you know what, how, many, how many mosquitoes bat eat, eat, eats every night and all those things? So God has a balance to his fallen creation, and he doesn't want those things eaten. That's good for us. And still, there's other fish-eater ducks that are in this and birds in there. We know that if you shoot a duck that's a fish-eater, you shouldn't eat it. You'll probably get sick from it. So there's God protecting his people as well as showing his holiness. 
But look at verses 20 through 23. He kind of moved now into insects and flying things and creeping things that are around. And, and there's a list that he considers unclean ants and grubs and all kinds of stuff. But if there were flying insects with, it's interesting how he breaks this down, flying insects with jointed legs above their feet, they could be eaten. And so you can eat your crickets, your grasshoppers, your locusts, favorite staple of John the Baptist dipped in honey. He seemed to like them. But they were free, he was free to eat those. And then verse 23, notice he says in this, insects which are four-footed are detestable to you. There's a whole debate on this because people go, well, we think Moses is inconsistent here because you know, to qualify as an insect, you have to have six legs. Well, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he knows they're insects. But he's talking that they creep and move like a four-legged animal. Um, these things were not to be eaten. So many of these winged creatures were, were a nuisance to a nomadic people. Remember, Israel's on the move. They're headed to the promised land. And they ain't going to get there because they're going to disobey God. And they're going to spend 40 years doing loops and laps out in the desert. And so here God has given these creatures that help keep down the bug population, help keep down the rat population. And every time they see them, they should recognize that God is holy and he has told us not to partake in certain things for our good and for his glory. Now, B, the lesson on cleanliness and the holiness of God. Look at how he deals with death and, the, and a holy God, verses 24 through 28. The priest shall take... Oops, I'm in, my pages are turning here. Um, let me say 24. Um, by these, moreover, you, you will be made unclean. Whoever touches the carcass becomes unclean until evening. And whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Concerning all the animals which divide the hoof, but do not make a split hoof, or which do not chew the cud, you are unclean, are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. Also, whatever walks on its paws... Among all the creatures that walk on all fours um, are unclean to you. Whoever touches that carcass, these are dead things, becomes unclean until evening. In verse 28, and the one who picks up the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. Now, unclean animals, um, when dead, they, they couldn't just be left there, right? You leave a dead rat in your house, one, it's going to smell really bad, and two, you just don't can't believe the diseases that those things pack around, right? And so they needed to be disposed of. And so what God's doing here, another kind aspect he's given is he says, look, somebody has to dispose of this unclean animal, but the one who touches it, they're unclean for the rest of the day, and they need to be cleansed, wash their garments, and so forth. And there's this brief quarantine that they need to go through. Now, I think this helps the nation recognize what was holy and what was unholy to God, but also understand that that God made a way to deal with things. So life was holy to God, and he wanted them to see that life was holy. He also wanted to see that death was part of the fall. And so if you touch this, these dead things, it's part of the fall. This is what happened. The wages of sin brought death. So he wants them to see that. But he's also caring for their well-being here. And if a dead rodent was found in an Israelite encampment or a village, it had to be taken care of. I mean, is it hard? I mean, I, I know when COVID broke out, a lot of us were studying some of the plagues that are out. When Black Plague turned out um, in the 1300s, I think, which because of uh, bubonic plague and it was really tied to rodents, squirrels, and rats, and things like that, a quarter of the population of Europe died because of it. And, and one of the things I was reading on this back a, couple, a year and a half ago when all this was happening, that the Jewish communities had such little death among them. 
And, and even though they're, they're certainly not living under the New Testament or New, New Covenant, they held to these dietary laws and these restrictions of how to deal with dead things, and they found that many in the Jewish community did not die like the rest of Europe because their houses were clean, and they kept things, dead things, away. Um, when, when you study particularly Old Testament pagan nations that were around Israel, often they lived in complete filth. Dead things laid in the streets. No one dealt with those things. God wanted this community not only to understand sin and holiness and things that weren't unholy, but he wanted them to have a life that was, that was clean from disease as well. Now, one of the questions you have to ask is, why, why the sundown? He says they have to be unclean till sundown. Well, I think this is fascinating. First off, there's a real difference between this ceremonial uncleanliness that he's talking about here. So it's only till sundown. That's way different than um, having to go offer a sacrifice, a burnt sacrifice or a sacrifice for sin, an atoning sacrifice. He, he's showing that this was a temporary thing. You had to deal with this. You had to remove this dead rat or whatever it was, and you're just unclean till the end of the day. And so many theologians that I read on this believe it's a real picture of just some of the deadness that we can pick up from the world from day to day. And uh, I know many of you are um, uh, in business or, or in the world in some way, and you deal with some difficult things, and maybe at the end of the day you feel like you've been treading in the world. Well, well I think that's what Jesus did in John 13. Remember, he washed their feet, and Peter's going, well, don't wash my feet. And he says, well, I don't wash your feet. You're not part of me. He goes, well, wash all of me. And Jesus says, if I, <laughs> if I have to wash all of you, you're not part of me. And so he's, he's really teaching that there was a daily washing of sin. And so I think what the Lord was doing, he gave the nation of Israel a practical way of dealing with death within the camp, how to remove that, but also to see that death is deadly. Death, death does cause you to be unclean. The wages of sin is death, and, and yet it was temporary in their case. Now, rebellion was another thing. That's when they had to come and bring their sacrifices of burnt offering and sin offering. Um, look at number two there. God is concerned with the smallest things that defile mankind, like verse 29 to 31. Now these are to, to you, the unclean among the swarming things which swarm on the earth, the mole, the mouse, um, the great uh, lizards in its kind, the gecko, the crocodile, the lizard, the sand reptile, the chameleon. These are to you unclean among all the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead becomes unclean to the living. Well, just simply and quickly here, all these animals and insects and reptiles were commonly found in the agriculture world. So remember, in an ancient world, everybody was a farmer in some way. I mean, you grew everything. There was no markets like we would have today. Everybody was in, in the agriculture world. And, and maybe you didn't have your own big farm, but you had something. And as soon as you stepped out the door, you walked on dirt streets. You walked on dirt roads. You walked between farms. And all of these creatures were there, right? And you might come across a dead lizard or snake or something like that. Um, so every turn, every time they turned around, they could expect to see something of sin. From the snail to the chameleon, the, the Israelites were to see the difference between what God says is of him and what's not of him. What's clean, what's unclean, what's holy, what's not. And I think what he's doing here in this passage, I wrote on my notes, God cares about even the smallest of sinful things. See, we, we like the big ones, right? We got our list, the big things. Oh, I'm not engaged with that good. I'm not in that, I'm not in that, I'm not in that. But these little things. And so some of these animals that are in here are very small. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 14 really goes into more detail on a lot of them, and some of them are very, very teeny. And God says, that's unholy to me. Three, we find the penetrating effects of sin. Verse 32 through 38, again, you can just look at this as I go down through this. Um, from a health conscience to the standard of cleanliness, these laws were very important. Um, and here he describes that if a rodent or a reptile crawls into your good set of clay china um, that your grandma gave you from Egypt, um, that bull has to die. Um, so they were to break that bowl, most likely because it was made of some kind of earthen product, and the death of that animal would soak down there really would be not something you would clean well. So that, he says that to break those things. And for one, it, it, it stopped the spread of disease. He taught them to make sure that dead things aren't in their house. It would stop disease to be spread among his people. Remember, he, he, he told his people to to multiply and fill the earth, and, and he was going to give them a promised land, and, and, and he wanted his people healthy, and he wanted them to go and be and fulfill what he had for them. So uh, most importantly, he shows again and again how God loves purity, and so he wanted their homes pure. He wanted their lives pure. He wanted what they touched pure. He was after that. But some things like wood and clothing and skin even, and sacks, it says in those verses, those things could be washed with water. But obviously, these laws gave the Israelite household a reason to prevent um, rodents and creeping things into their house. It could get quite expensive if you keep, because you're not taking care of the house, you're breaking all your dishes. Uh, honey, I need to go get some more bulls. Um, so it, it kept the house clean. And, and again, many people I read on this said the nation of Israel, their homes and their lifestyle, because of God's law, was so much cleaner than the pagans around them. Because God kept them healthy. We know, we give all credit to God, because as we study when they walk around the wilderness for 40 years, the Bible tells us that their shoes didn't wore out, they were always fed, they had water for them. He met their needs in so many ways. And a lot of it he met through their obedience. As they learned, as the older people who denied God died off, the younger ones began to obey God, and the nation was healthy. Verses 38, 37-38, he gives an example of, of seeds, uh, and even how those can be polluted. And, and again, the time is running out on me, but if you had a seed and a dead animal died on, on those and and if the seed hadn't been planted, it was still clean. But if the seed had been planted and the dead animal was there and water fell on it, then that seed is dead because it was, the whole idea was the uncleanness of that animal that died under that planet seed because that seed was decaying through its pores would seep in death. And what an illustration of sin. When we mess with sin, it'll seep into the heart of the seed of your heart. And we should not have that around us. So Israel's being taught of the dangers uh, to be in contact with stuff. They're, they're being taught that sin and death and unholiness will get to your heart and to stay away from those. 39 through 40, we begin to see the laws applied to the natural death of clean animals. So what happens when a clean animal dies? A, a goat, um, a cow, an oxen, or so forth. Well, even there, they're, they're able to deal with that. They were... They were they still, had, they still had rules of the natural death of a clean animal, but the animals, what's interesting, when an animal that dies for sacrifice has, doesn't have the same list of rules. So God was showing that the, the atonement was a special animal, and of course it was pointing to the Lord again. Now, um, God's also teaching the Israelites to remember that sin entered, entered the world, and it was fatal. 
So anytime he's constantly dealing with death, these seeds die, this animal dies, sin was fatal, and we need to be careful with it. So cleansing from all death outside of the sacrificial death was necessary to be taught. Four, the sin, sin's uh, deadly reminders. Now these verses I want to read to you. Look at 40, 41 to 43. Now every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is accessible not to be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly and whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet in respects to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them for they are detestable. Do not render yourself detestable through any of the swarming th things that swarm and, and you shall not make yourself unclean with them so that you, so you will become unclean. Well, you might say, well, this sounds a little bit rep repetitious. Well, it is in some ways because it's very similar to what he said in verse 29 and 30. But here I think he says some practical things. I want you to think about this. He says, don't mess with these things that crawl on the ground on their bellies and swarm and so forth because it's probably a good idea to teach your children not to handle them. Uh, who were we talking to that was having a um, scorpion problem? Oh, it was the Sheelys. Where's, where's Myra? Yes. Yeah. Um, the kids out west are having scorpion problems. Well, you better teach your kids when you live in the west, particularly Arizona or some of the drier white, you better check your shoes before you put them on. Because those things love to creep in there. And I, I think what he's doing is reminding them of the sting of death. You, you mess with, with something that has poison. You mess with some of these things. They, they'll bring death. They'll bring harm to your children. And, and, and in this day, you, you couldn't call, you know, 1-800-PEST-CONTROL. You, you, you had to teach these things, right? And, and there's such a great lesson. Son, if you mess with that, what God says is not of him, you will die. Sin kills. See, the Bible is always teaching the wages of sin is death. It teaches it over and over. We just wrote it out in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Wages of sin is death, and so there's this reminder not to mess with these. Teach your children not to handle the things that God says are unclean. They're dangerous. Keep an eye on what's around you. I think this is the way God wants us to live. Now, I would, I would say that maybe this is alluding to some other things a little further. Maybe this is a reminder of Satan's work, too. Satan slithered into a garden one day, didn't he? And there he entered the serpent, and he's called the great deceiver in the Garden of Eden. And so some of these animals and some of these reptiles and some of these things, they're a reminder of, of sin. And, and Satan still bears the title of the great deceiver, doesn't he? And he's, he's constantly seeking to deceive mankind. He's slithering trickery. He's constantly tempting people. This is what he does. And so some of this, God is trying to say, look, this is bad. You, this end will bite you. This end will bring an end to your life. Please stay away from it. And maybe this is a reminder to the nation to be careful about handling the things that caused man to fall. And when you look at this, you begin to think, what did Eve see? What did Adam and Eve see? Oh, it was good. Oh, I, I lusted after that. It was good to the taste. It was good for wisdom. I could be like God. That envious jealousy, that that desire to have the things of God and be like him is always there. And so these things reminded them of the fall of man. That's unclean. That's not of me. Those things are dead. Those things are poisonous. Those things are, are not what I want you to partake in. The reminder that man is under the fall. But how beautiful is it that God has revealed the dangers of sin? I mean, we're not ignorant of the dangers of sin, are we? 
If you read your Bible, you go, I know what sin is. I know what God says about relationships. I know what he says about fornication and adultery and homosexuality and, and all those things we were looking at Sunday. We're going to actually come back to those verses because I want to really jump on those verses 9 and 10 11 on Sunday. But, but um, we know what the Bible says. It's, it's really plain, isn't it? It's really black and white in the Bible. And yet Christianity is trying to mix it up and make it confusing in some ways. But we know. But God, I'm, I'm so grateful. I studied this week. I wrote this in my Bible. How beautiful it is God that he reveals to me the dangers of sin. Aren't you glad you know what is sin and what is not? I, I think we should revel in the fact that God loves us to, so much. And he says, Scott, that's sin. That cost my son's death. Stay away from it. What a beautiful thing that is. And yet the world is enticing with it, right? The world's trying to justify it in every way. And God says, no, that's dangerous. And, and, and what a blessed hope he's given us that we can be forgiven people. We can turn away from sin. We don't have to be, as, as Hebrews say, so easily entangled with it. We can turn from that. And to understand that he gave us a beautiful Savior dressed in righteousness who who has given us his own righteousness so what a glorious thing as i read this i kept thinking lord you have made known the things you love and the things you don't help me love what you love amen that's what god's doing here well the final verses are really beautiful see learn to love the holiness of god and seal and sin's appeal will weaken Notice he says in 44, for I am the Lord your God. And what a statement. I am. The great statement he gave Moses back in Exodus 3.14. Who are you? Tell him I am. I am the Lord. Notice this personal relationship now that he says, I'm your God. And I think what God's doing here is he's claiming the right to his people. He's claiming the right to speak to his people about certain areas in their life, including what to eat, even down to the smallest thing to touch or not touch it. He's, he cares about them so much because I'm your God. What a beautiful thing. Look, if you're a Christian, you have a God in heaven. You're not just some group of random people out there. You're actually his child. You're chosen child of God. He knew you from the foundations of the world. He sent his son to die for you. And so this is very personal, isn't it? And even in this Old Testament setting under the Old Covenant, there was a very personal relationship with God. I've, I've created this way to get to me. I've created these sacrificial systems so you can be reconciled to me temporarily, but you can have a right relationship. You can have fellowship with me, and I'm concerned to you down to the scorpion. That's how much I care about you. That's how much I'm concerned about how sin will damage our relationship, and I want you to know it. See, this is the love of God, don't you? So I read Leviticus completely different now. I just look at the love of God and go, man, he's loving to these people. He's making them so different than the rest of the world. That's what he does with us. And you know what? Christians are going to be really, really different. Bob Askell was meeting with us, our elders, was working through this SBC thing. You'll hear about this next week. And he said this, he said, I believe it's going to come down to there's not only separate Christians, you know, following these different things. There's going to come a time where it's Christians and pagans. And it's probably true. Probably true. 
It doesn't mean theology won't be important and we'll have to stand on all of the counsel of God's word, but it's really going to come down, are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ or are you not? There's no more gray. There never was, but people made a lot of gray, right? It's going to get down to that. And we're either going to love the Lord who loves us so greatly, and we're either going to desire and love what he loves and hate what he hates, or we're going to find ourselves in difficulties. He tells the nation, note here, he says, consecrate yourself. I think one of God's great purposes in the dietary laws of Israel was to set them apart from the pagan nations. And even though we're not under that, he wants to set us apart. Daniel and his three friends, let's go back to that Daniel diet. He did not come up with a diet to lose weight. <laughs> he did not come up with a diet to, to kind of poke fun at whatever else was going on. He came up with what he believed would worship God. And he loved God so much that Daniel and his friends said, we don't want to defile our God, and so will you let us obey him? And of course, the supervisor over Daniel let them do that, and we know the story. See, the nation of Israel was not to defile themselves with the things of the world, and so are Christians. We are not to let the things of the world defile us. Well, in closing, if you're here and you think, well, maybe this was good for me, I want you to remind you, verse 2 says that this was given to the nation of Israel. So um, I'm teaching these dietary laws to help us understand that we learn to love what God loves and hate what he hates. This is not for us necessarily to live by. And the Bible is very clear. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, um, he's going to see Cornelius, and, and, and yet in this whole vision that God gives him, he brings down all these animals, clean and unclean, and God says to partake of it. And, of course, Peter says, my lips have never touched this. But God continues to impress upon him now in this new covenant, all things are clean. In Acts chapter 15, as, the, as Paul and Barnabas return and they tell them what God is doing, the, the elders there say, we are, not to, to, we are not going to press the law of Moses upon this New Testament church. We're to call them to follow the Lord Jesus. Every book almost deals with dietary things that were part of a legalistic world. And Paul says, don't be a part of these things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbath day. We're free in Christ. <laughs> You're probably hungry after me talking on this. Go, to, go get yourself a hamburger and put bacon on it tonight. <laughs> and thank God that he made hogs. And worship him and pray and thank God for that food. Teach, teach your children. Do not make your prayer before your meal some arbitrary, repet repetitive thing. Thank God in front of your children that he gave you that food. All things come down from the Father above. And we're free to enjoy these things now. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says it's doctrines of demons. And then he says this, For everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So we receive things with gratitude. It says it's sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. I mean, there's times, and we'll see this when we get into this text. Um, and well, not this week, it's coming. Um, I don't think I'm going to get that far. But he's, he's saying don't cause people to stumble. So if you know it's going to offend a brother, be careful with those things, but yet you're still free. Romans 14.14, 14, I know that I'm convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But to him who thinks anything is to be unclean, to him is unclean. And so we tell people all the time, don't sin against your conscience. 
God's put a conscious issue on your mind, make sure you can square it with Scripture under the new covenant. But if God has given you a conscious issue, don't sin against your conscience. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Remember, first, uh, uh, Leviticus 11 is about what God loves, what God deems holy and what he deems unholy. What he would put in front of his people every day so they would know what God loves and what he doesn't. That's the goal. That's how we're to live our lives. Everything that comes upon your way, you need to have biblical, we need to have biblical vision as we look at things, as we listen to the news, as we engage in a conversation with somebody. Everything through the, the lens, the grid of a biblical theology, understanding those things, what pleases God and what doesn't please God. And listen, brothers and sisters, if you're engaged in something that doesn't please God, confess it and turn from it. He's provided a way through Jesus Christ. Don't abuse him. Don't abuse our great grace that we've had. Use that grace to live for Jesus. Father, thank you for this time. We've gone a little long, but so such a joy to look at these passages and understand them and get a better understanding of you, God. Lord, every day is around us, just like the Israelites, as they walked outside their tent, they saw things that, they were, that were good and things that were unclean, things clean and unclean. Every day, Lord, we walk out of our houses. We pray that it's not in our homes. But as we walk out of our houses, Lord, we see things that are contrary to you and things that honor you. Lord, may we, by your grace, because you died for us, for your son died for us and bled and gave us salvation and have granted us eternity, Lord, by that motivation, may we choose by your grace to live godly lives in this perverse generation. Help us, Lord, to live godly lives, to honor you. Thank you for making a means that we can always come back. Jesus is ever interceding for us. The Spirit of God is interceding for us. Anytime we fall, Lord, you are, we right there can confess and repent and turn to you and walk with you, Lord. God, help us not abuse that, but to be motivated by a God who loves us so much, Lord. Father, we thank you for the Bible, the whole Bible. Thank you even for the Pentateuch, how we can see your greatness through it. In Jesus' name, amen.